Hello, it's Wednesday the 26th of July. I'm Miranda Sawyer and I've bagsied my seat in the House of Lords. Welcome back to Paper Cuts, the modern newspaper review, where we dive bomb into a pile of papers like a band of happy toddlers. We rip up the important parts and hold them out to you like trophies. We laugh like drains at any rude words. We chuck all the boring stuff on the floor and we wear the rest as a hat until we fall asleep in our tea. Remember, we're out mid-morning every Monday, Wednesday and Friday, so subscribe on your favourite podcast app and you'll never miss an episode. Now here are the headlines for today's show. Rishi hates green, sees red. Sunak rows back on eco-policies and shows his nasty side. Don't call me in class, Mum. UN recommends that mobile phones should be banned in schools. And maybe he'll shut up now. Alison Rose, boss of NatWest, quits over Farage Rao. Welcome to Paper Cuts. We read the papers so you don't have to. Thanks for joining us on Papercuts, where we've got an X and we know how to use it. I'm Miranda Sawyer, and here to join me is New Statesman columnist and stalwart Stonehenge defender, John Elledge. Hello, John. Hello. I just really like rocks. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. You know, it's a good it's a good stance, I'd say. And making his Papercuts debut is stand-up comedian and highfalutin cheese gourmand, Marcus Brigstock. Hello, Marcus. Hello. Thanks for having me. So what have we got on the front pages today? John, what have you got? So the Telegraph has got Rose. I leaked Farage's story to the BBC, but I won't resign. Funny story about that one coming up. The Metro has gone with Ring of Fire. Heatwave blazes in Circle Med from Algeria to France. And meanwhile, in the mail, um, this one goes on a bit, I warn you. Uh, Rishi praises male expose of corrupt immigration solicitors. Then Bar Council attacks him for damaging trust in lawyers. What planet are they on? What planet are they what on? What planet are they on indeed? <laughs> um, and Marcus, what do you have? Uh, well, the front of the Times is good. They've got use your bumper profits to help people hunt tells biggest firms. Uh, this is an expose proving once and for all that Jeremy Hunt is a socialist. Um, <laughs> forcing companies to give their money away. No, it's sort of, it's sort of nothing. It's Jeremy Hunt going, have you done well? Spread it about or don't, it's up to you. Uh, and then the Times, just like most of them, number 10 wants NatWest boss uh, to quit over Farage. Um, but we own a majority stake in the NatWest. And so I've told them I want her reinstated. I've got the Daily Star. Painting porker rakes in a million pounds from artwork, bringing home the bacon. And the Daily Express have gone with how can bank chief in Farage Rao keep job, well, um, which has now been answered. Yes, how can they? OK, so overnight, the news came in that Alison Rose, the head of NatWest, who owned Coots, has resigned over this. So will Farage shut up now, John? <laughs> I definitely think this is the thing that's going to shut him up. <laughs> we've just been we've all been waiting for years. Just one more, one more thing. Um, I mean, the guy thrives on two things: attention and grievance. And from this, he's got both of them. And even though it's we we are the, the Mediterranean is on fire, and we're all talking about Nigel Farage, I just don't see like what possible incentive he has to stop any of that. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, what I mean, what exactly happened here is a lot of the the papers have essentially taken what seems to be a slightly complicated story. Um, so I, I would say the Mail, the Express, and the Telegraph have just described it as a woke bank is cancelling man of the people's bank account. But that's not exactly what happened, is it? Really? No, 
No, I mean, it's it's way more complicated than that and does seem to be a small amount of all the things that people have suggested, including he probably didn't officially have enough money to have an account. Although uh, now that she has gone, her severance package means she has got enough money to have a Coots account. So it's sort of all balanced (laughs) out. Um, Was he a person of political interest? Well, sort of no, sort of yes. Was there dodgy money? No one knows the answer to that, it seems. Um, has he got loads of attention from it? Yes. So mission achieved. I just don't feel like you need to be woke and not want to have to deal with Nigel Farage on a regular basis. I think there could be other reasons for that. Yes, which is mm. what they kind of listed. Really. <laughs> anyway, let's hope this story has died. Now, across many of the papers today is the story that Rishi Sunak and the government seem to be going to rip up their green policies, despite the whole of Europe being on fire. He's delaying a flagship eco-policy which would force manufacturers to pay for recycling, pushing it back to 2025. He's planning to slacken energy efficient targets for landlords. And when asked if he would stick to banning the sale of petrol and diesel cars by 2030, he ignored the question. Great. So what's going on with this, do you think, John? I mean, it feels to me like a sort of core vote strategy. They know they're going to lose. The only question is how badly are they going to lose? So they're looking around for any possible comfort. And they've got the result in Uxbridge there last week, uh, which was widely, where, where the Tories uh, hung on in that by-election. This is widely attributed to to the uh, ULES policy, um, which even though it was originally a Boris Johnson thing, has been expanded by Sadiq Khan. And they've gone like, great, OK, we will take against green policies. And that is that is how we will hang on to our voters. That is how we will win. Um which, conveniently enough, is exactly the sort of thing that certain people in the Conservative Party wanted to do anyway. Um, I mean, I think there is there is an argument that there are, there, there is a, a minority of the population who 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 do oppose who don't think climate change is real or who don't think it's worth the costs of fighting it, and they tend to be they tend to be older, they tend to be homeowners, they tend to vote conservative. So this does kind of make a little bit of sense. It is going to be sort of voter repellent to anybody who isn't already in that group. And the problem is the Tories have already kind of got that group locked down. It's everybody else who hates them, who isn't voting for them right now, who's going to be looking at what's happening in the Mediterranean and thinking, maybe these guys shouldn't be in government right now. Yeah, it seems very odd. I mean, there was a a bit of research that came out and Pippa Crera in The Guardian did an article about it. And there was a brilliant bit of research that they found, whereas they found, you know, people in the Red Wall actually are, you know, they, they do want green policies. But they also, as we all are, able to hold kind of two thoughts in their mind at the same time. So this person in the research said, look, I really, really want things to be better for my grandchildren, but also I don't really like the new straws in McDonald's. <laughs> I like the plastic ones. This is really difficult. But so- there's, there's actually a, there's a great uh, Twitter thread by uh, Robert Colville of the Centre for Policy Studies, um, formerly of the, the Telegraph once upon a time. He's making this exact argument that actually, if you look at the polling... Policies to combat climate change are popular across the population, uh, regardless of demographics and regardless of political views as well. Like going right back to Cameron hugging that husky, it put, climate change has not been politicised in this country in the way it but is that, in the US. But that works. A picture of David Cameron hugging a husky works. But this, this will work. This could win the Conservatives the election, in my opinion. I really think so, because most of us, all of us probably in the end go, yeah, we want a planet to still be here for our grandchildren and all the rest of it. But as we come up nearer to the election, they won't get involved in that. They will go specific on what will this cost you? 
Everybody wants the the planet safe, but if they go, labor's going to cost you this amount of money. And I think the ULES thing is really interesting where that's concerned, that it's like, here's your warning. As soon as it was about, what does this cost you? This is £12.50 a day, which is a lot. If you can't get around and you've got a car, it's enough. And people go, I don't love these Tories, but £12.50 a day will sway me. Okay, there's a, there's another weird aspect to this, the way that Tories are presenting themselves. So on the front of the mail yesterday, and it's also referred to today, there was an ex- a pretty good exclusive about a dodgy lawyer advising immigrants to lie so that they can stay in the UK. They did really well with that, I thought. Um, but somehow they've turned this, and Sunak has turned this story into an attack on Labour. How do they do that? It's just, I mean, it's the same thing, isn't it? They're just desperate for a dividing line. They're just desperate for something that puts them on the side of the public and Labour on the other side. The idea that it's the Labour Party that's preventing the Tories from dealing with the small boats in the Channel situation is absurd. Because apart from anything else, this government does still have quite a big majority. Labour in Parliament can do diddly fuck. It's, it's purely that they need some reason to say the Labour Party are the problem here. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it seems Labour have done this themselves in April. So they put out kind of ads saying, do you think that adults convicted of sexually assaulting children should go to prison? Richie Sunak doesn't. Right? Mm. And then the Labour Party, lots of people in the Labour Party are very upset about this. But what they're trying to do, essentially, the Conservatives, is be nasty. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I uh, I must say I'm persuaded. <laughs> I uh, I look at Rishi Sunak and he seems, you know, he's got big soft eyes, hasn't he? And he seems all right. <laughs> but now that I've seen this edge to him, I think, my God, there's a man who'll get something done. And then you look further down and uh, you don't have to look terribly far down with Rishi Sunak and you realise his trousers don't reach his shoes. Mm. He's a big fan of the ankle cut trouser. And I, I'm afraid I'm still, and I know it's old fashioned, but I'm afraid I don't trust a person whose trouser doesn't reach his shoes. And it's not like he can't afford the extra couple of inches of cloth. I know, it's true. I mean, it's not very scary either. I would no. say a scary person would wear longer trousers. He's like exactly. an evil play school presenter. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's what he's going for. I mean, you know, that is... Would you trust Rishi Sunak if he made his next few statements wearing culottes? <laughs> that actually does sound quite scary sure. <laughs> suddenly I'm a bit scary about it I mean that, that does seem to be part of the policy they're trying to make Rishi Sunak seem like a nasty man aren't they yeah and it's it's not going to work because he just he doesn't he just isn't frightening he's just kind of like small and cuddly and he's kind of got that sort of voice where it's like he always sounds like he does sound like a children's TV presenter he's always like he's explaining things to the nation in a very slightly patronising way he doesn't come across as scary. He can't do the sort of, you know, Sue Ella Braverman thing of being like, well, you're, you're a terrifying person. I don't want anyone near you. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. Um, just to um, finish about our loony Tory section, in the Times there's a column, and it's by their chief city commentator, saying that, that this kind of flip-flopping on green issues is really, really bad because it makes a government that seems incapable... It says, this is a government that seems incapable of making up up its mind about anything. And then says, because he's the city commentator, why would anyone commit any money, like whether you're in private Mm -hmm. equity or an entrepreneur, to a project in the UK when you don't know what you're dealing with from one day to the next? Mm -hmm. I mean, this has been the problem for the last, what, seven years of this government, basically since the Brexit referendum, that there is just no stability in anything. You can't know what our trading arrangements are going to be in a few years' time. You don't know what the law is going to be. You don't know how employment law is going to work. And that that does have this side effect. It's like, why would you invest here when if you just need access to this time zone and a lot of educated people who speak English, you could go to Dublin or Amsterdam. 
Now, on the front page of The Guardian, there's a story that's come out of the UN. A UNESCO report says, shock, that smartphones should be banned from schools to tackle classroom disruption. Sorry, this just makes me laugh. <laughs> really? <laughs> Improve learning. What? What? <laughs> and help protection from cyberbullying. It says that digital technology as a whole should always be subservient to a human-centred vision of education, which essentially means face-to-face interaction with a teacher. So, uh, Marcus, what is going on here, do you think? An excellent idea. Keep smartphones out of the classroom. It's a very, very smart idea. The trouble with saying that this will reduce cyberbullying is that the people who do manage to get their phones into school during the day will have all day to cyberbully someone who will then get home and pick up their phone, <laughs> the goody-goody, and go, oh, no. <laughs> this is really bad. <laughs> They've been doing this all day. I mean... It's it's genuinely interesting to me, this, because I remember when, when my older kids were in school and the school took quite a proactive view of smartphones and were like, we really want to integrate smartphones into their learning and say, this is what they'll be using, so let's integrate it and all the rest of it. And it categorically did not work. <laughs> and nobody, 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 nobody still is talking about the dopamine issue with phones the, no, the no. dopamine thing of every time you pick your phone up your brain goes oh new new opportunity new food new partner new conversation bam 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 little dopamine hit little dopamine hit and especially in in a young brain the real world cannot compete doesn't matter how mm. compelling your classmates are it cannot compete yeah. I mean, we're halfway through the show. I've, my phone is on flight mode and I'm getting the itch. <laughs> genuinely, it's like, what if I've missed a meme? How, um, how soon after the wheels go down on, an, on a flight is your phone back on and looking for its signal? I mean, like, you know, you know, a lot of people don't actually switch their phones off on flights. No, that can't be true because the plane would immediately tip into the sea. That's, that's, <laughs> well, I, I don't know how to break. Apparently, that's not true. Apparently, it makes things slightly more difficult for air traffic control. Uh, but so, like, sometimes I've just forgotten to switch it off. And you land safely, miraculously, despite the phone signal. Um, and, uh, and by the time you get to the, by the, by the time you get to passport control, you've already run up 30 great <laughs> you've already run up 30 quid of fees um but like yeah it is it is sort of an immediate response like so i actually um many years ago i used to edit an education magazine or it's called education investor it's a magazine for people who want to sell things to sell education services or education products and there is a huge amount of tech money float, floating around that sector um like there are these massive trade fairs where people show off the kind of dizzy new gadgets they've got a lot of this sounds very exciting. Like there are certain things you can do with smartphones that I think of that I think if, if I'd had them when I was a kid, it would have been great. Like, you know, the fact you can download great works of literature for essentially nothing mm-hmm. or something like Duolingo is a far better way of, of, um, you want to give us any money, Duolingo? You know where I am. Um, <laughs> it's a far better way of like learning like French vocabulary than just sitting there with mm-hmm. a list. Of, so some of this stuff is, is great, but also like I can no longer sit down and read a book if my phone is not in a different room. Yeah. Mm. And I am an adult. If if I had had like access to a smartphone at the age of fourteen, I don't know if I would have read any books at all. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> I have children with smartphones, and I have to say, you know, the the basic thing that happens with them is that they have, if they want some homework to be done, they just use Chat GPT, or if they want, you know, I mean, it's very easy to get the answers from your smartphone. Mm. So of course they have to be banned in classrooms, and it's you know all schools pretty much now have banned them from classrooms. It might not have banned them throughout the whole of the day, but they've banned them from classrooms. They- so it does seem to be. I mean, I know it sounds a bit, you know, it just seems a bit obvious. I just think the UN sounds a bit like my nan. Like, why have you got your phone out?
There's another small story on the front page of the FT about education, which we spotted, which is, yes. this is quite interesting. So lots of university students across the UK whose courses were disrupted by the pandemic and by lecturer strikes have basically joined a group litigation case funded by a US funding firm to, I mean, basically this is being funded to the tune of £13 million, not bad, and it's to claim compensation from their universities. I mean, it seems unlikely that they'll succeed. Have you got any sympathy, though? (laughs) I have massive sympathy with the students. I mean, this is a there's a great big scandal going on, in in my opinion, where universities are ripping students off. I was gobsmacked when I discovered my son has just finished his second year at, at university. And I was gobsmacked when I discovered how many of his lectures are still online. And I was like, what? How come they're online? And of course, if you're a student and I remember it well, even though it was a while ago and someone went, you don't have to come in for this one. You can stay in your room. And you can get up, therefore, at at, uh, five minutes to 11 and be completely there for this lecture. They, I think, at the time are really unlikely to complain. But loads and loads of teaching is still happening online in in as far as I can tell, for no other reason than, well, this is a lot easier than trying to get everybody here. And it simply isn't as good. The exchange of ideas that happens. I'm talking predominantly about arts degrees, but the exchange of ideas that happens in a teaching environment cannot be replicated online. But I think this is kind of a new a new version of a story that's been rumbling for a while. I remember a few years ago, uh, there were protests at, at quite a good university. I think it was Bristol from some of the some of the humanities students because they were getting like two hours contact time a week or something mm. for which they were being charged £9,000 a year. Yeah, yeah. And this is quite early in the days of nine grand fees. And a lot of these students were like, well, what are we paying for? If it's you're just basically giving us a reading list and telling us to do it ourselves. If you're going to start charging people for stuff, they are going to expect more. And I think this has come as a shock to the system for a lot of universities. Well, you know, obviously they want to think like it's all, you know, university lecturers get a tough deal in many ways. They work very hard. Um, I'm not, I'm not blaming anyone personally, but often the things they are delivering do not seem like they are worth the fees that are being charged. There is always at some point going to come a reckoning on that. And the, my worry is it leans into uh, Rishi Sunak's position on let's just get rid of univer- uh, universities and degrees that don't look like my maths one that I did. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Lots of people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here at Paper Cuts, headlines make us happy. We had ashes to splashes the other day, which we loved, but we're still waiting for a Jean Meanie, for a piggy stardust, and especially a wife on Mars. Until we get those, Marcus, what have you got? <laughs> uh, I've got a story from the Express here about Harry Kane, uh, who may be about to change clubs. I'm not I'm not wholly across what happens in the footballs. <laughs> Um, but Harry Kane may be about to change clubs and there's there are shenanigans around it. So the Express, quite brilliantly, in my opinion, uh, have come up with Harry Plotters. Very good. Because we like his that. first name is Harry. And I think the suggestion, I've not fully understood the story, <laughs> is that they, the transfer window is now decided by the sorting hat. <laughs> <laughs> and footballers will simply pull the sorting hat on and it will go... 
Arsenal. <laughs> that's, that's, that's where they have to if go. only. <laughs> they have to go and play. Um, that would and be then, amazing. And then there's another, there's a lovely story here in, uh, in The Sun. I've always thought tabloid papers are keen on things that are slightly the wrong size. They love, <laughs> they love, a, they love a sudden woman has big foot, you know, or it's a giant hat story. Um, well, they've, they've got a picture with an actual size written on it of, it is definitely a very large strawberry. This strawberry, to give you some idea, is about the size of a large apple. We're talking a, a late September Braben. Uh, for the fellow gourmands amongst you it's a hell of a strawberry and uh, a man found it in his fruit punnet taking up half the punnet presumably claims he didn't spot it when he bought them uh, and that it was delicious and so they've gone with strawberry filled forever very good we like that yeah right then what um what do you have john the Sun has a delightfully gratuitous, in multiple senses, story, uh, which seems to be based on the Facebook group for a block of flats in Southampton, uh, in which flats can sell for up to £200,000, apparently, uh, where everyone is complaining about one particular set of tenants having very, very loud sex. They've got a picture of the building in question with, like, you know, speech bubbles coming from the window saying things like, it's all quite boisterous. <laughs> or, Sounds like there's a young lady in trouble. Uh, anyway, the story, the headline is Hump Tower. Very good. We like that. And then our old friend, the star, has a lovely story about a, a parrot who got stranded up a mountain and had to be rescued. And she greeted her rescuers with a, with a cheery, hello. Uh, that, that, that's, that's my parrot voice. <laughs> um, anyway, the, the, the headline is Rescued Parrot Who Went for a Long Squawk. Now, in a few papers, there's a story about a recent Channel 4 programme called The British Miracle Meet, hosted by our favourite Greg Wallace. Everybody loves Greg, which appeared to be a documentary about harvesting human meat as cheap protein. It was actually a spoof based on satirist Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal, which suggested that the poor of Ireland should offer their kids up as meat. John, was this a good idea, do you think? <laughs> Well, I personally think it was a very bad idea, but that's largely because I started reading. Uh, Greg Wallace has written a column about it in, in the Sun. <laughs> I did get halfway through it before I realised it was satire, uh. <laughs> uh, which and that, and that made me feel stupid. <laughs> so obviously, I think this is a, a foul slur on on the national character. Um, I mean, it's 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 actually quite a clever idea. It's a fairly direct take on a modest proposal in that it is basically the same joke, but it is being used to kind of discuss a lot of the questions around the ethics of eating meat, whether if you're eating someone who has volunteered to be eaten, that is different, whether it should be a problem for vegetarians. Uh, there's lots of stuff in there about how like the tenderest human meat will come from children, debates about whether people from different ends of the country would taste different, that kind of stuff. <laughs> I think that is I, marketed as toddler tartare. Toddler tartare, <laughs> that particular bit. <laughs> which it did, it's, I mean, they went dark. They really they went did. there. But I think it's actually, I genuinely think it's like quite, it, it is kind of a, a good way of really shining the light on some of these issues. And and the fact that people fell for it briefly, hello, um, does kind of, that is why people, that is why people are talking about it. It's the outrage economy. So I think it's actually been quite effective. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a classic thing from a, the, um, a Tory MP called Giles Watling, who's a member of the Culture, Media and Sport Committee, who said something like this should have come with a health warning so people are aware it is not factual and can make a choice on whether to watch it or not I mean please John, John Watling had he been at home and listened to the original broadcast of the War of the Worlds <laughs> would have run straight out 
with his radiogram in hand and started killing people and looting, wouldn't he? Just, yeah. to, they're coming! <laughs> I mean, you can't it- warn people when it's a spoof. I mean, I, I'm... I've had a really good look at this story and I'm very unclear about what the satirical point was, but I still think it's ace and very funny. And I really, really hope that if people were persuaded that, you know, we could grow human flesh and then start eating it or just start eating each other generally, the Channel 4 should put it on immediately after Naked Attraction (laughs) so that we've sort of we've sort of worked out which cuts we want. (laughs) Um, there's a lovely bit in it as well about whether you, you mentioned it about how different people from different parts of the country would taste. And I think there is a suggestion in there uh, uh, about rubbing Geordies with beer in the same way that you sort of prep Wagyu beef by rubbing sake into, uh, into, into cows. But. I'm just really worried that Channel 4 schedule is going to start dividing the population into people to have sex with and people to eat. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to I'm tell you. I'm very worried as to which side of the line I'm falling <laughs> when on. When did you last watch Channel Four? That <laughs> happened years ago. But Greg Wallace is a is a is a good guy. I've, I'm just about to uh, MasterChef, Celebrity MasterChef, is just about to be broadcast, and I'm on it. Amazing! Spoiler, here it is. Amazing! And it was absolutely thrilling and very exciting and very nerve wracking and all of those things. And I, I'll be honest, and I sort of hope he doesn't listen to this, I really expected, as well as finding the cooking quite difficult, that I would find Greg Wallace very annoying. Yeah. <laughs> and he isn't. He's yeah. so nice and he's so encouraging. And he made me laugh. He made me laugh so much. Uh, in one of the rounds, I can't say how far I got or what happened, but, it, you know, I was very nervous, let's just say that. And he came up to me and he took hold of my hand and he said, Marcus, I hope by now that you have realised that we don't book people for Celebrity MasterChef based on their looks. Good luck. <laughs> and I was like, I was like yeah. do you know what? It was actually genuine. It was just what I needed. A little bit of a tension breaker. And he and, and Tarot, it's really interesting watching John Tarot keep still while Greg sort of exercises all of the jokes he needs to get out. Greg <laughs> just does it and John Tarot just keeps still, waits and then starts talking about cooking. It's great. So I, I love that Greg Wallace has made this show. I'm annoyed that I haven't yet seen it, but I'm going to go back and watch yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Can I, I mean, Can I just check what did Greg make you cook? I'm not allowed to tell you, but it wasn't another person. That's what I'm checking. I mean, like... <laughs> Like like all human beings, I've I've gone as far as tasting my own scabs and bogies, but that's but that's just that's it. And I had and with neither of those did I think. Mm, I wonder what long pig is like. You know, I hope Army Hammer's listening to this. Now, the papers aren't just terrifying climate change and political whimpery. There is some fun in there too. Silly shoes, terrible trends, stupid sports, clothes to dress your dog in, all the important stuff of life. What have we found today? We've got a pig, haven't we? We do. (laughs) Regular (laughs) listeners will be unsurprised to learn it comes from uh, our old friend, the Daily Star. Um, It's the story of the, uh, the, the rescue pig who one day picked up a paintbrush and started painting uh, and has uh, her, her works have so far raised uh, a million pounds, which is, it's, I mean, I'm looking at them. They're, the lady pig, I'm very happy like, about that. It, the, the work is abstract. 
I'm going to be honest, it's very much a kind of like a post-impressionist kind of vibe. Um, the star's headline, by the way, is Picasso with a couple of dollar signs for S's. Um, but apart from it being a lovely story in and of itself, a uh, one picture sold for £20,000, the most by a non-human artist in history. Uh, the story has an absolutely lovely final line when the South African animal sanctuary boss, Joanne Lefson, said of the pig, how could I have known that when I rescued her, she'd end up rescuing me? <laughs> I think that's the closing line from Pretty Woman, isn't it? <laughs> Even better. I mean, I have to say, it does seem a bit weird where we're going to be eating human meat and the pigs are going to be painting. I mean, yeah. we all know what this reminds us of. Animal Farm is a documentary. Is there any, uh, you have four legs good, two legs bad, one brush. Fabulous, darling. <laughs> is there any indication of what the pig has spent her million pounds on? A larger sty? That's about all you could buy for that amount of money in central London these days. Yeah, I think so. Our, our right neighbours tenants. have knocked through the back of their sty. <laughs> and that's the end of today's Paper Cuts. Thanks to John. Thank you. And thanks to Marcus. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to follow Paper Cuts on your favourite podcast app. If you really like us, then leave us five stars on Spotify and Apple and a more fun than a Mojo Dojo Casa House review. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Papercuts Show. Links are in the show notes. I've been Miranda Sawyer, and you've been listening to Papercuts on a day when a tech expert has announced that one day artificial intelligence could have feelings and will deserve political rights. But which way will those robots vote? See you next time. Papercuts was presented by Miranda Sawyer with Marcus Brigstock and John Ellidge. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producer was me, Alex Reese, with assistant production from Adam Wright. Music by Simon Williams, socials by Connor Newsom, design by James Parrott, the executive producer was Martin Boytosh, and Papercuts was a Podmasters production. <laughs>